Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And it is Wednesday again. So here we are with another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And I'm here with my co-host, Charles Sadler. Charles, good to be with you today. Actually, I'm with you every day because we are married. (laughs) I'm Kate Sadler, and we are the team behind King Garden, which is our design firm. And I mentioned in a previous episode that we decided to start this podcast to share some of our travels to gardens around the world, Mm. both for fun and for work, to get to share a lot of the information that we've gleaned over the years with our listening audience. And so we're delighted to have you tune in. We may have, I think we alluded in a previous episode to the fact that we were on the road recording. And I think at that point, we were in New Paltz, New York. And we did, in the great American tradition, an epic road trip from New York (laughs) State to the state of Texas. We went from New York City to Houston. We have offices there and here. We're here to, to support our office in the Houston area as it gets off the ground. So it was an opportunity for us to really see the landscape of the eastern part of North America, the northern United States, in great (laughs) detail. Because five days is a long time to be on the road. So what were your impressions of some of the places that we got to see? Can you you maybe describe the route we took for those who, who could follow on a map? Oh, sure. Well, there's the east coast of the United States, and there are highways... So the East Coast runs, it's not exactly north-south, it's a little bit of an angle. I guess it would be from northeast to southwest, roughly, so it's a bit of an angle. And there's Route 95, would be like very close to the coast. And then there's the Appalachian Mountains, which go from roughly, there's the Appalachian Trail, actually, which goes from Georgia to Maine. Which your brother hiked. Right, right? Yeah. yeah, very proudly. That was quite a, an epic a lot of people start it, not too many people, not nearly as many finish it. That's sort of part of the American story is travel and whether it's on foot, on horseback, car. Riding the rails. Riding the rails. <laughs> <laughs> so there's Route 95, which is a, a commercial trucking route. It'd be like the bit one of the busiest on the East Coast of the United States. Then you have Route 81, which is more or less, which is what we took, which is more or less follows the Appalachian Mountains. It weaves in and out of them and around them. So we went through, let's see, from Virginia, from, well, from New York to Virginia. And you've done some work in Virginia. We may um, actually talk about it in another episode if we do something specific to hedge care, but you were called to a special property in Virginia. Can you tell us about that? Oh, right. Yeah, that was, that was an exciting project. It was a landscape architecture firm that's in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, that is you know, very specialized. And they do all kinds of historic restoration, recreating gardens of the gardens of Virginia, and specifically a property that we were consulted on, which is called Stratford Hall, which is on the Potomac River. It was very special. It's a 2,000 acre. It was used to be a large family property, and then it became, it's now open to the public. They were restoring what gardens would have looked like during that, what they call the period of significance, which I'm not sure if it was this, it may have gone back to the 1700s or 1800s. So the style they were mimicking, mimicking was England, and there were these, an alley of, of uh, topiary shrubs. What type of plant was it, do you recall? It was a U, Y-E-W, or uh, taxis would be like the, 
the Latin name. <laughs> That's helpful for our listeners, I'm sure. In which we actually uh, have calls for that pretty regularly, where the designer envisions it could be landscape architect from Virginia or England or other parts of North America or, or Europe. So they're dreaming in these topiary shapes. And in some places in, the, in England and the Netherlands, Germany, you can go to a wholesale nursery and you could buy a finished topiary shape, a cone or a box or different a globe. In North America, they're not that readily available. And so we've been called in to create these <laughs> once the plant is planted. So that's one of the projects that we did in Virginia. But on this road trip, we actually stopped in a town in Virginia called Staunton, which is in the mountains. It was just gorgeous landscapes, split rail fences. And you know the flora that were there. Can you think of any specific species that we saw once we, we landed in that town? Well, I see lots of oaks. Oh, and there's always oaks. Plants like the sourwood, oxidendron, that's a favorite, which has these these racemes, so it's it's a thin strand. It almost looks like a single strand, and then there's small flowers on it. And so that's very special to see. I mean, like one phenomenon as we would stop as we made our way south, there'd be plants that I recognize, but the the morphology or the or the phenology of it, where the size of the leaf, the size of the tree, how it varies depending on the elevation, the amount of sunlight. I guess the closer you are to the equator. More the sunlight is dependable, where it's when you've been in South America, let's say near the equator, the sun rises and sets about the same time every day. So the way the plants would behave there would be different than if you're in northern Maine or North Dakota, let's say. It would vary quite a bit. Or if you're in Alaska, there'd be times where there would be no sun almost all day, and then there'd be times where there'd be sunlight all day. Yeah, daylight cues and moisture cues are a big part of that dormant non-dormant cycle. Oh, that, right, for you know, to break its dormancy. Yeah, knowing when leaves are going to change and often we may think that it is temperature related, but my understanding, and I'm open to correction, is that it does have to do with light cycle. Oh, right. We, I guess we, by our, through our travels and our business, we see that where it appears some plants, they're breaking the dormancy is somewhat de- is dependent on, on the sunlight, where it's that is not changing more or less, even if it's snowing out the amount of light, let's say March 15th every year, is roughly the same. And then there are other plants, which my guess is is the minority, which are temperature-related. And so those could vary quite a bit. You know, they might vary by three weeks. Or as we've seen, especially along the roadside, water-related changes, like leaf color that almost looks autumnal, but it is, oh, right. as you've pointed out, drought-related. Right, drought stress. Yeah. So that's... Plants like the like sumac, which you see, it could be considered a weed when it's growing alongside a highway, but to me, it's quite beautiful. And you see it's often gravelly and dry alongside a highway or a country road. And so that can be some of the best fall color. <laughs> so our regular listeners will have heard me say this every episode, but if anybody's listening to us for the first time, or if you haven't jotted it down, of course, we love to hear from listeners, even if it is you know, a plant geneticist who has something to, <laughs> to you know, correct us on or, or something along those lines. You can always drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. That's related to our uh, design website. And then you can follow us as a podcast on Facebook at In the Landscape. That is our heading. Also on uh, Twitter at in underscore landscape and on Instagram at kinggardeninc. 
that's where you can find us. And we appreciate feedback, pictures from your own gardens that might relate to Mm -hmm. some of our episodes, questions for us that you'd like us to answer in future episodes, and always comments or corrections if there's anything that we've misstated here on the air. Yeah, it's fun getting questions. This would relate to our subject a little bit where we have family members that move from New Jersey down here to Texas. And so they were familiar with that landscape and they'd see, like they knew enough to know this is a big oak tree. And more or less, they have a pretty similar one in their yard here in Texas. And so how the height would vary quite a bit. In the Northeast, you have tulip trees, sugar maples, red oaks, and those can get to be 80, 90. They're definitely above 70 feet. They get very tall. And here in Texas, the trees are quite a bit, they're generally quite a bit shorter. And so when we get a question like that from a family member or from a listener, it causes me to do a little more research. And so with that particular, the tree height, I'm not a scientist, but as I understood that when I read the scientific information, the tree is basically a pump. So it's pumping water from the roots to the top of the tree. And so in an area, let's say like the north in you're in New England or the northeast mid-Atlantic, the moisture is pretty dependable and it's a pretty short growing season. The tree's dormant for about half the year, more or less. And so that pump, so it's it's dependable that it'll have water go from a very if it was a building up many floors like a skyscraper. Where in a season, let's say like in Texas, Louisiana, New Orleans, Alabama, it's a longer growing season. And so if that pump runs out of water in the tree, it's devastating. And so that could so the tree, the tree basically never wants to be pumping and have no water. So the trees subsequently, as I understood the scientific journal, are shorter. So it doesn't have as far to pump the water. And what are some publications you follow as a professional that you know maybe even a lay person would find interesting if they're into these topics? There are various government agencies that have great, the USDA, U.S. Department of Agricultural, U.S. Forest Service, the National Parks, I love visiting those. They have fantastic literature, American Society of Landscape Architects Journal. And so that website is available to everybody. International Society of Arboriculture. And there's all kinds of other subsequent journals I get from them that might be on urban trees or there are peer-reviewed literature. And so that's always fun to read, even if it's a little outside my area of expertise. It gives me some information. Speaking of urban trees, one of the next stops after Virginia was Knoxville, Tennessee. It was my first time visiting that town. It's on a river, the Tennessee River. <laughs> <laughs> you notice something interesting about the trees and the way they're planted as they're um, sort of rejuvenating that town. Oh, right. I mean, that's been occurring in Europe and, and then throughout North America. And there's a phenomenon when there's a vibrant streetscape where it's a beautiful paving material, vibrant trees comfortable benches to sit in, that whole environment, nice lighting um, in the evening. It's a way to invigorate cities. And so in America, there are plenty of cities which have had their heyday and then they're being, let's call it reinvigorated. And so in, in uh, Knoxville, we stumbled upon that. There's a type of, a, it's called permeable paving. There's all different. And so in this case, it was, you can imagine when a tree's roots are limited to the size of the tree pit, which when you walk down the sidewalk and there's, let's say, like a four by four foot area where there's no concrete where the tree is growing, if it's limited to that size, it'll maybe last like 20 years and it's not going to get too big. So, but there are new new-ish systems where it's more or less the whole sidewalk area is a root area. And so there are 
it's it's a modular system. There's all different types of systems, but it's more or less that whole area below the sidewalk can be filled with a with a growing material, and and the sidewalk is is still stable. And so one key to that is when you look down and you see a paver, like a brick-like paver, and then instead of having mortar between the joints, there's little tiny gravel. And so when it rains. Instead of that water all going into the storm sewer and then flooding your local river or uh, that water, it goes through the gravel into the tree roots and then it helps the tree grow and it cuts down on, on erosion and all kinds of other you know, urban problems. So one of the other exciting things that was taking place in Knoxville at the time was the, uh, was it ISA? Right, ISA. Competition for climbing arborists. And it just so happened where we were staying, there were some who were checking out at the same time we were, and we saw their equipment bags. And it was a little like finding out you're staying in a hotel with a certain rock star. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that is intense. And so it's it, a- there were sort of like cues. Some of their, their luggage was, uh, you could tell they were sponsored by, by, by a tool manufacturer of chainsaws or other arborist equipment. So that sort of caught my eye. Oh, that's, sort of, that's interesting. And then a climbing arborist, someone that would do that as a career over a long period of time would have, I mean, their physique would be somewhat like a rock climber. So it's only muscle, you know, very sinewy, very athletic. And when they started to appear and they were, they were like departing actually the same day we were. And then you were very keen to like to notice, isn't that event? Because I had mentioned, I think there was an event and then it was quite a coincidence. Yeah, it was fun to get to chat. <laughs> it was with fun them. to chat with them. They yeah. had such a fellowship. You mm. know, they're very. They came from all different. There were people from North America, and then quite a few from Europe. And they had maintained a friendship, and they were all together. and And they had visited, I think, the Smoky Mountains. Some of them had done other road trips uh, as part of that their time in the U.S. So that's an exciting event to follow next year, and we recommend that because they had quite a bit of social media associated with it as well. So you can mm-hmm. keep track of. <laughs> who's winning and who's climbing who's competing. <laughs> After Knoxville, we stopped, I think, partway on our way to our next overnight in a town, Chattanooga. Oh, right. Which I knew from an old song, <laughs> Chattanooga Choo Choo. I'm sure they get that all the time. But tell us about that town because that was a bit of a, a surprise to us as well. Right. That was very vibrant. Also, beautiful streetscapes. It's on a river. So the architecture of the of the bridges was very prominent in both Chattanooga and Knoxville. In Knoxville, it was easier to get down to the water. There was even like a restaurant we enjoyed. In Chattanooga, it was more of a bluff. So you were up quite high, and there was it was a beautiful vista. And we stumbled upon a it was a museum and a sculpture garden, an actual oh, a right. beautiful sculpture garden that's sort of situated over this dramatic bluff. So that was right. That, and that museum. That's quite special that it's right on the bluff looking out. So that's a case where you have architecture, the geology, geography, landscape architecture. When it's done well, it can be very dramatic and very beautiful. And meanwhile, what we're noticing the entire trip, the special feature of traveling by car and going at the pace that you're going and covering the distances that you can cover is that you see this gradual progression of that, you know, change of phenotype that you were referring to this you see the plants kind of 
get taller or shorter depending on elevation? And so what were some of the changes, some of the the horticultural or natural elements that stood out as we were starting to get that far south? Well, I was driving when we left Virginia, as I recall, let's see, there were lots of deciduous trees. And then there was a period where where there were more evergreen trees and the height got quite tall, uh, so that was quite fascinating. Then there were periods as we got deeper into the south where the height of the trees got lower, where they were not that tall. And you'd see like quite a bit of variety. Like the term would be vegetation management. So as we're going along the road in different states, how they're with these long growing seasons in the south, the plants can be really a challenge to like to maintain safe roadways. It was a lot of mowing. There were, you know, big signs along the freeway that mowing was taking place. And I mean, you can imagine <laughs> I think I said something in another episode of having not much patience for hand watering and (laughs) mowing also is a task that you tend to take over in the thought of how often I have to, one has to mow the lawn just in their own backyard. So in Mm -hmm. order to maintain these roadways, to, to make this style of travel accessible, you know, to the folks who love it or need it or rely on it to get from point A to point B, it's a huge sort of municipal undertaking that our departments of transportation, we, we take our hats off to them for mm-hmm. <laughs> maintaining these roadways. And a lot of that care is landscape related. I mean, from the Northeast, I'm familiar with that with all the parkways. And so those and many other roadways where it's very thoughtful landscape architecture and landscape design, where you can tell there's a succession plan and there are ongoing new plantings of trees and native plants. We mentioned rain gardens in one episode about water. And again, this I, I think even here near Houston, we've seen a lot of like fresh plantings along the roadside, which I'm sure are here to help take up some of the water that we get. Well, the one plant like, that we discovered, we saw it firsthand, which I think was, what state was that where we saw uh, kudzu? Well, I don't remember because I'm not as attuned to plants <laughs> as you are. And I would not have known what it was, but I do recall I think it was seeing a vine. Where we first. I, it was apparent to me, even as a non like horticulturalist or landscape designer, that there was some vine that was overtaking things. And then you and my mom discussed that it was uh, this special vine that folks knew about this invasive species that has kind of taken over right, in a the, lot of places. It's like the, the phrase, the vine that ate the south or the plant that ate the south. So we really did see that. So that vine in particular, because it stood out, just reminds me of another phenomenon, which was getting in the car just about every time there would be an insect in the car with me, <laughs> which was probably not great for the insect either. But I was thinking that, you know, I could be transporting across state lines, at least, something that was not going to be beneficial for the next state that we visited. And I used to do road trips out on the West Coast from the San Francisco Bay Area in California, all the way up to Flathead <laughs> Lake in Montana. And as you came through the states of Oregon and California, for sure, you had an agricultural stop. I imagine this is somewhat common in places like certainly ports for island states and island countries, Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere like the UK or Australia, or even the state of Hawaii. But as you're passing through these sort of contiguous land masses, there are still points where they will check you and ask you to remove any fruit that you have on board, or even as you come through the airport. So for the 
Oregon, California border stop. You had to let them take a look at your car. They would throw away any produce you might have to be sure you weren't transporting invasive species. So these arteries that we're using to get around, other beings are using, but voluntarily or not. I mean, those right. insects were not, More like <laughs> did not know that. More like the ash borer and various uh, plants that have like devastated urban landscapes, urban forests. They've come in on a pallet of wood or other imported, they come into the ports. The last episode, we talked about oak wilt. And so I read up on that a little more. And so you're prohibited from transporting oak. There's basically quarantine areas for that. And that, remember from a conference, I learned this, the fungus can travel or the pathogen can travel through roots. So you have, there's that book, there's maybe the secret life of trees, how more or less how trees communicate through their roots. And so they can be all inter interconnected, like how your house electrical system or phone system is connected to a bigger system. And so a pathogen could travel from a forest through the roots. And so there's quarantines for that too. If if it was developed at a certain property, they would trench around it so those roots couldn't contaminate other trees. Sounds like good old internet malware or something. <laughs> it sounds like a similar concept. The care that you might take as you are traveling or if you are transplanting from one state to another, it, it might pay to research what the standards are, if there's anything to be on the lookout for, and certainly nurseries, I think. All this to say that we will likely have future episodes on invasive species, how to take best practices to try to prevent their spread or mm -hmm. to manage them if they popped up as well as just general biosecurity. So that will be a, a whole topic for a future episode. But as we reminisce about this trip from one location to another, you can see the ecological impact that these have. And I think get an awareness for your own, your own participation potentially in this transportation, even you know, with the best of intentions. Right. So we went from Chattanooga to Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, right. And you saw something interesting there. Right. You know, I did some research. There's the American chest, or the American chestnut, which the leaf looks very similar to an, a certain type of Asian chestnut. So based on what I researched, it, to me, it looked like it was an American chestnut tree, which is, which is quite special. And why, why is that special? Because of the chestnut blight. So they were more or less like the old saying went that a squirrel, that the American chestnut was such a dominant forest species that a squirrel could climb a chestnut in, let's say, Virginia or northern Florida, and it could go from limb to limb all the way to New England hmm. without touching the ground. There were that many chestnuts, and then they were wiped out. So the landscape we're seeing, gorgeous as it is, is potentially quite a bit different from the original landscape. Right. And we did see um, like ash trees. There's like an ash light, I believe it is. And so on our drive, we saw trees that were where there's like a current light going on. So all of that freedom of the open road comes with the responsibility to know how we're impacting the environment around us as we get out in, in the landscape. We want to be mindful there. From Birmingham, Alabama, that was a short overnight stay. Where was our next stop? Uh, New Orleans. Oh, New Orleans, Louisiana. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the landscape like there? Well, lots of live oaks on the very old the street trees were enormous i mean they had been cared for you know, tall or wide uh, very wide i mean just mm. the size of the trunks was if you were to stretch your arms out some of them were as wide as your arm span would be like five six feet was was common 
It's so, a beautiful live oaks. Remember one species we saw, Acer rubrum, which is a commonly called a swamp maple or a red maple that's a native to North America. That was fascinating to see that growing in Louisiana swamps. In theory, I know that it, it, it ranged. It'll grow in from Nova Scotia all the way down the East Coast. It was pretty fascinating to see it growing all the way down there. Any other sort of landscape surprises in that region? Well, like the one tree that's another favorite called a black gum or a, or a tupelo. Remember seeing that? I don't know which state we were in. Maybe Tennessee, one of those we stopped for lunch. The size of the tree and the size of the leaves was so much bigger than I'm used to seeing in the Northeast. And so I was familiar with it, where the bark looked about the same. That's a pretty neat phenomenon, how we're like the red maple in Louisiana was a lot shorter. It might have been like 25 feet tall. That was a mature tree, and it was sort of sparse. It wasn't, it was growing in a swamp with bald cypress. I was like, you're seeing these old friends, these features of these trees that you're familiar with, but the way it's representing it, the way it's manifested, those genes, is, there's so much variability. So these are, are the Acer rubrum, the tupelo, are, they, are these trees that you would plant in your designs mm-hmm, if sure. your clients in the Northeast? Mm-hmm. And then as a, as a designer who's in a new region, this observation of the difference, do you think it might affect the way you would design with those plants here? I think it would. It would. I mean, some regions in the country, like even in the Pacific Northwest, it's like quite a diverse garden design community. So there's a like an enormous palette of plants. Other parts of the country, here in Houston, there's a rich design sense, but I would say the, the nurseries that I'm visiting, there's not a deep range of plants. That's like, I went to a nursery today. Uh, there's not quite as broad a spectrum. So it's, there's lots of room for, you know, for uh, turning clients onto, onto different species. And finally, from New Orleans, Louisiana, we made our way across a small part of Texas because it is a big state, wound up in Houston. And what, one of the interesting things about both New Orleans and Houston is that they suffered pretty catastrophic hurricanes within the last decade and Houston more recently than New Orleans. But you saw what you described as some resilience in the, in the plants in the landscape. Of course, the people tremendously resilient in those regions. What about kind of recovering from these natural disasters? Well, let's see the plants. I mean, the high winds, in some cases, the plants are just defoliated, which is very recoverable. It'd be like losing your shirt. <laughs> just get another shirt. Which sometimes those reporters who have to stand out in those hurricanes oh, look like they're in, that, in danger of that. Or their jacket. Wind is pretty nuts. Yeah, so it's seeing the incredible resiliency of, of all the wetlands, the bayous, and really understanding a bayou. It's, it's quite a fascinating landscape. And then the bayou is a slow moving, either a big creek or a small river. Is, you know, and it's and going from New Orleans to Houston, there'd be a sign that said, You're now passing this lake or this river. Which it was hard to discern. It was just water, continuous water. And then with the bald cypress, I remember doing some research uh, that the bald cypress has knees or more or less like a, it's a growth that comes out of the water and learning about that. And so what they think, the hypothesis was that it was for the roots to breathe, an exchange of gases. And But what the, the peer-reviewed literature seems to, it's not conclusive, is that it's actually for stability. When the tree is growing in a in an average condition where there's not, it's not inundated with water, it doesn't manifest those knees uh, either 
not at all or not much. So it's so when you're in a in an inundated swamp, you see a lot of those needs, which is quite exciting. So it would seem that this travel is all about observing differences and seeing the sort of vibrancy, resiliency, variation around your given geographical area. So it's very exciting to get out there and observe. And as I usually ask toward the end of each episode, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would like to share that, I, that we haven't covered? When I spent my undergraduate days at Rochester Institute of Technology, RIT, there was a favorite professor there, was art history and the history of architecture. And he loved to say America was about the romance of the river and the road. And so you have, you have Mark Twain's writings, you have in the 20th century, John Steinbeck, his book Travels with Charlie, where he travels. I was reading about it, actually, it was at the end of his life, and he knew that he was going to, he, he, he was ill. And so he took a poodle with him. It was a, like a big full size standard poodle, and he, with a camper, and he drove around the US. And then, even more recently, uh, William Least Heat Moon, his book Blue Highways, it might have come out in the 80s or 90s. And so he did a similar travel around America. And, and blue highways are those roadways that are not like the giant interstates. Is oh, right, that correct? correct? Right. So yeah. a blue highway is a, like Route 66, our listeners uh, may be familiar it's with. Often, it's often like a road just, to, uh, just divided by a, by a yellow line, let's say. <laughs> so get out there and uh, have some adventures. <laughs> Even if it's just your neighborhood, just observing the differences mm-hmm. is really a beautiful thing. It informs our own work in the landscape profession and you know our own lives. And of course, if it is a road trip, you can always take us with you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Podcasts are fantastic when you're spending a lot of time in the car. So I can't recommend that enough. And we look forward to our next episode next Wednesday. So grateful to you for tuning in. Again, feel free to drop us a line, share with us your gardens, ask us questions. We're happy to happy to answer. And I guess there's so much optimism by by traveling on the resiliency, the positivity of of America, of Americans, we travel all around the world. Uh, people are people are friendly around the world. We find there's uh, lots of hope, and the plants are are hopeful and uh, optimistic, and the plant starts to grow. And especially when plants are your common language, oh, right. you know, if you express an interest in like meeting those climbing arborists from other parts of the world, or talking to local people about the plants that we're looking at, how how'd you decide on this choice? You know, it's once that's the common language, it really opens the world wide up. Yeah, sure does. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.